Welcome to season two of the Shopstool podcast, a podcast for woodworkers and the maker community in general. With Joey Chalk from King Post Timberworks, Brian Cush from Sawdust Bureau, and Robin Lewis from Robin Lewis Makes. Hi everyone, I hope you're all very well. This is episode 25, season two of the Shopstool podcast. As always, I want to start by introducing my two co-hosts. Joey, how are you today? Very good, Robin. How are you? Not too bad, not too bad, thanks. And Brian, how's it going? I'm excellent, man. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Good. My name is Robin Lewis. Welcome to the show, everyone. So on this episode, we have another guest from Melbourne. He's one half of a business focusing heavily on CNC with a very unique product line, I'd like to say. Um, on the website, you'll find information on furniture, but also artwork, something we haven't seen a lot of on the show. So a very big welcome to Jem Selig Freeman from Like Butter. How are you tonight? I am well, Robin. Thank you. Thanks for the unique introduction. <laughs> um, all right. So I guess what we'll do is um, for anyone who doesn't know you, I mean, you've got a very big following on, on Instagram. That's where uh, we've, uh, Joey and I have obviously seen you first. Brian's known you for a while. But I guess for everyone else, um, your business, where did it start? How did it get to where it is today? Just yeah, you know, give us the, the origin story. Yeah, cool. Okay. Um, I'll try and give you the, the less rambly version. We'll see how we go. Um, so my partner and now wife, Laura Woodward, is a sculptor or a kinetic sculptor. Um, and in, we met 2005 and in 2007 she had some stainless steel sculptures that needed to be produced um, I was in. I did industrial design at uni. Um, I was fluffing around, doing not much. Didn't know how to make anything. Laura needed this laser cutting done, and we thought, let's buy a plasma cutter, as you do. <laughs> um, so very naively, we bought a sort of hobby kit, CNC hobby kit from the states, um, with a plasma cutter. And just with real, other than making these pieces for Laura, we didn't really have any business intentions. We got this machine, tried to set it up in my sister's shed in the northern suburbs of Melbourne and like didn't even know the difference between single phase and three phase power and we were trying to run this 60 amp plasma cutter <laughs> on, a, on a, a house circuit. <laughs> and... Um, I was working for a, another artist at the time as an artist assistant doing sort of 3D modelling for him and he rented us a little corner of his workshop and we set up the plasma cutter in there and just sort of very organically with no business plan just set about um, doing CNC plasma cutting of metal panel products for other artists and designers and that kind of just rolled from one job to the next and you know we budgeted a little tool in here and there and slowly grew our collection and um yeah that was kind of the origin story of how we got started mm. um, so that's pretty interesting because all i've seen is uh Plywood, plywood work. Mm. Yeah, so how, did, yeah. how did the transition? Yeah, how did we jump from steel to plywood? Yeah, well, um, Laura was the welder and the metal worker, so she taught me all of those skills, and we did metal fab for the first three years at least. Okay, um, you know, balustrades and gates, and just straight profile cutting. 
Um, and then I think it's probably 2009, I think it was, we started mucking around. We had a router attachment for this plasma cutter, right. so it's like a DeWalt, one of those cylindrical DeWalt hand yep. routers that you could bolt onto the gantry. Um, and we'd had that from the start, but we'd barely used it. And so I'd set that up and was starting to do a little bit of plastic cutting for some clients and a little bit of timber work. And um, one of our earliest products was the slot together shelves, which Laura designed for our rental apartment. And we needed a set of bookshelves that we could pull apart and move between homes. Um, so she designed that and we started cutting that on our little CNC machine and... I think, you know, we were sort of still very much mainly steel fab at that point. Um, and then a friend of mine, Sonia Wrench, who was a designer and stylist who I'd worked with in my old day job at Moth Design. Uh, she was working for the State of Design Festival and in Melbourne and just posted this brief to us that was, we need 200 pieces of furniture in about <laughs> four weeks. Um, why don't you make it out of plywood Um, and really it just went from there we made 200 pieces of furniture and rolled it out into the festival and um, we still make that product line it's been heavily resolved since then but it's still one of our staple products Um, and from there again no intentions we just became typecast as the the plywood people right (laughs) you know you you get the work that you put out into the world and so people saw this and the plywood boxes that we'd start i made a batch of like plywood boxes from offcuts for family one christmas and a bunch of my friends wanted them and then instagram this was around the 2013 when instagram was sort of building up and i think i recently joined and people saw these plywood boxes and started ordering them and we made 1600 in the first couple of years i think and we're sort of well over 10,000 units now um we've numbered everyone (laughs) (laughs) the only reason i know what we're up to um, it's so crazy how we we had a coc design on the show a couple weeks back and they also got their initial work from Instagram. Mm. Mm. Now, as someone who's relatively new to it, I wouldn't even consider Instagram being a place for, for that sort of um, mm. income. Yeah. Yeah, it's been really powerful for us. Um, again, just a sort of organic thing. Like in the start, I was, it was just very much my personal account. I was just posting whatever I wanted, just what I was doing, and some of that included making stuff. Right. But, you know, there's lots of other random stuff on there too and I think part of the strength of our sort of organic following that we have now has come from the fact that it was just my personal account. Right. Um, And it captured all the sort of playful antics and random stuff I was building and very much aside from the business activity. Um, I reckon you're spot on there. Like the the way people engage with your posts of your jig making and things, and the crazy inventions that you sort of come up with to complete jobs, definitely hit with people as opposed to just a glossy finished shot yeah. that you spend yeah. hours setting up and editing. Yeah. But it's just that on the whim, set the camera up and and you talking to camera, explaining what you've done. I think is what people love about your Instagram. Hmm. Yeah. 
Um, and on occasion, I will try and sort of use it more as a sales platform and put up the shiny photo. Yeah. Um, but typically, I find that doesn't get, you know, it doesn't actually do that much for us. Um, it's the organic, uh, on the fly stuff that it gets much higher engagement. Um, I think also I, I find that those pictures, like in workshop settings, like you might sweep a floor, sweep an area, and have a relatively mm. clean background or wall or something. Those pictures tend to to look a lot more like the piece is going to look in your own home. Yeah, there's, there's natural lighting, there's shadows, there's a bit of dust in the air, and it's just that's what it's probably going to look like in your house rather than this perfectly polished Photoshop photo session, which looks Unless great you live for your in a website. concrete block or something. Yeah, yeah. it looks great yeah. on a website, but it's it's pretty far removed from every people's everyday uh, living spaces. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed your episode with Ben Shanley recently when talking about his photographic style. Yeah. Um, definitely picked up a few little things yeah. from that that I'd like to try. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I suppose the other, just backtracking the other bit of my backstory that's relevant to that is uh, I finished third year industrial design and was I enjoyed it, but I was not sure that that was what I wanted to do like industrial design was very much about designing cars and toothbrushes and consumer right. goods injection moulding all that sort yeah. of stuff and so I applied to do photography at the Victorian College of the Arts at that point and got in and was about to dive down an artist sort of road um, and I think my dad talked me around and said just you know do one more year in industrial design do honours <laughs> and that kind of that that uh, broke it for me. Like I was, I loved it by the end of that, and it was felt like, to some extent, like I've never really known what I want to do, and to this day, I still often say that that when I grow up, I'll do something else. But um, you know, um, industrial design was a really good sort of broad uh, thing thing to study that worked well for me. You know. Having, having grown up making billy carts and yeah. nailing bits of wood together, it was kind of the perfect course. Can you talk about your workshop a bit? Because the sort of behind, mm-hmm. the, behind the curtain look is that Jem actually used to be my landlord. So my first workshop that I set up was in a, um, a shared workshop space that was run by Laura and Jem. So it'd be really interesting for people to find out how you came about setting up Ironside Studios and how long it ran for and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so Ironside was, is, it's not was, is. <laughs> still runs. Still um, We're just not there anymore. Um, Ironside Studios is Laura, my wife's brainchild. Um, so she was a sculptor and struggling, came out of uni struggling to find any sort of shared studio space where she could use an angle grinder and weld and make noise. And so as she is wont to do she thought well I'll just set up my own Um, and she found this incredible site in the old young husband wool store in Kensington a really rough site and she started with about 700 square metres I think and one crazy summer we built 200 metres of wall out of (laughs) started an MDF and people moved in and I I can't remember at what point you moved in Brian but it was fairly early in the piece I think it was 2011, maybe? Yeah, sounds right. No, maybe 12, 12, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And the studio is 
yeah, continued to grow until we had a few thousand square metres of studios and I think up to 80 people at its peak, um, all of which Laura managed. I didn't have much to do with it other than sort That's of a crazy. bit of housekeeping. Um, but it was, it was just... It was a ballsy, ballsy move to <laughs> signing a lease on a 700 square metre workshop yeah. in pretty much in inner Melbourne as well. Like, this is not yeah. like Mystics. Yeah, by the time it got to its peak, it was a pretty frightening... Uh, yeah. The outgoings were pretty frightening. Um, yeah. And so, as these buildings do, it went to developers, ultimately. Um, and we moved out of there 12 months ago, basically, um, having built a new workshop from scratch in country Victoria. Um, we toyed with renting or buying in northern Melbourne and then at some point after getting loan approval on a, a truly frightening commercial loan for a factory in Coburg, <laughs> we um, realised that we could build from scratch in Casamayan for less than the price of renting in yeah. Melbourne and thought, you know, we'd wanted to move to the country for a while and we thought let's let's make the shift and we were pretty nervous about what that would mean for the business, um, yep. uprooting our staff and our customer base potentially, but um, our key workshop staff have all moved with us. Awesome. And um, we haven't felt the dip in terms of that transition from the city. From a business perspective, it's been really positive. Um, How have you managed the clients from two hours away from Melbourne? Like, do you come um, down, you have, you've kept a shop front or...? We've kept a small office slash warehouse in Ironside Studios in Melbourne. So Ironside's got a new smaller site still in Kensington um, with only about 25 studios now, which is much more manageable. Um, and we've got a little space there and Sarah, our business manager, operates out of that site. So she's got an office and that's where we sort of hold a lot of stock for sort of day-to-day -day web orders and the like. Um, and I was going down there once a week for meetings and site visits, but um, since the COVID situation has been in effect, um, we've just been doing a lot more video calls and it's actually it's been great doing mm. less less of that travelling, to be honest. Yep. Um, yeah. So what size, what kind of workshop size have you got now? Yeah, uh, five, just under 600 square metres on the ground. Right. Um, an office, which is... <laughs> where I am now and yeah machine shop out there and big roller doors and lots of natural light nice. and cross ventilation yep. it's great I love it well that that picture that you've got on Instagram from it's it's sometime in June or July you can see it's the middle of winter it's very hazy outside mm. it looks beautiful and then you've got a couple of other pictures it looks like you're in the middle of nowhere yes. like there's nothing else <laughs> around you I can see why it would look like that. We're actually in a, an industrial estate, but an industrial estate that is sparsely populated. I think okay. we're, we're one of three factories in a, a plot, like in a, a circuit, um, which could take up to probably 10 to 12 sites. Um, right. So it's lovely, you know, there's kangaroos in the morning and, you know, <laughs> look across and wave to the distant neighbour who restores 1920s Bugattis and cool. so it's, a, it's a good spot <laughs> it's funny when we were ch we were chatting to COC um, the other week they were saying you know their workshop always has motorbikes and things lying in the corner and that is 
my longest lasting memory of your workshop is that old VW sitting there. That bloody car, yeah. <laughs> talk, talk us through what you were doing with that. <laughs> so it's still collecting dust, although it's in the car park now, so it gets washed the rain and slowly <laughs> rusting away. Um, oh gosh, when did I start that? Ten years ago, probably. I thought I'll build an electric car. I'll convert some old <laughs> thing and make myself an electric vehicle. And I shopped around and went through a few vehicle options, like a Series 1 Land Rover or a Volvo 240, and looking at the weight capacities and what might be suitable. And, and for some reason, I settled on a Volkswagen Type 3 squareback. Okay. Um, having had no specific interest in Volkswagens prior to that. Anyway, <laughs> I did a bare metal restoration, which was a gruelling experience, and I'll never do it again, but part of me is glad that I went through that What process. What is that? What is bare metal restoration? Taking, sandblasting the entire vehicle back to bare back to steel, well, um, well, welding all the little tiny rust holes and repainting the whole thing. And I did all of this in our Kensington workshop. Um, the car, no, it's an old wool store, so the front step was what, like, 800 off the ground, Brian. <laughs> yeah. And the door definitely didn't fit a vehicle, so we uh, tipped this thing on its side to get it through the front door and into the workshop. Um, yeah, crazy times. Anyway, it's still sitting there. I never finished it. Jeez. You've got the projects. batteries though, haven't you? <clears throat> yeah, well, I got it driving up and down the Kensington workshop at one point. Um, got it that far. And then it sat, and business got busy again, and it sat there. And then our place up here in the country is off grid and runs on a solar system. Okay. And the old lead acid batteries were dying, and I needed, uh, we were going to have to splash on new batteries. And I realized I had this pack of lithium, really good lithium batteries sitting in this project, not getting used. Right. That was the perfect capacity to just drop into the house. <laughs> so the car batteries now run home. So. Uh, if we get back to your workshop mm, a little sure. bit. Uh, I'm intrigued. I've got a small X-Carve CNC, and yep. a, in my workshop we've got a router parts CNC, you know, a kit set um, type, so it's a, a full sheet size CNC. Yep. So I'm vaguely familiar with what things can do, but if you are pumping out commercial quantities of plywood goods, have mm. you got like more than one machine? multiple head thingy bobs or is it just you've just no. got one good machine that is doing what it needs to do yeah I would say it's just one machine and I would say it fits that category of just one solid machine right. uh, it's an Australian built multicam okay um, we bought it five years ago to replace the old the original plasma cutter hobby right. CNC um, and that just blew my mind. Like, I, I haven't come from manufacturing, so I I've never really known what's possible. Yeah. And going to see that multicam for the first time and seeing it cut through 20 mil plywood in a single One pass. pass, yeah. Wow. <laughs> blew my yeah. mind. Um, that's amazing. So, yeah, that's been a really solid machine for us. Um, uh, very reliable and, yeah, and really changed the business in terms of what we could do and produce reliably you're saying multi-cam mm. so what, what's that that's just the brand the build ah. the machine builder um, in Australia 
Um, is it a multi-head machine, like a single a, spindle? Oh, okay. Yeah. No, it's nothing fancy. It's just three-axis. I yep. would love a second three-axis machine just yep. to keep things moving, but single machine has been fine. And whilst I would like just end of 2019, I almost pulled the pin on a second machine, and I'm glad I didn't. Yeah, right. I'm glad I don't mm-hmm. have those repayments right now. Yep. Um, yeah. And I was looking at five-axis machines last year as well. Yep. And again, I was going to ask if that's the next. Yeah. That's the next um, logical step. That that's where I'd like to take it. Yeah. Um, partly just because that's what I'm interested in. I really I love learning new stuff, and I feel like I've there's always more to learn. But I feel like I've reached a point with the three-axis machine, which. Um, I want more, and yep. a, a five-axis machine is kind of the next logical yeah, step to expand yeah, into. And also yeah, we, just, sorry, you no, go. carry on. Oh, I was just going to say, just from a business perspective, I'm aware too that three-axis CNCs are sort of becoming more and more, more accessible and more shops have them, and so if we want to sort of stay ahead and be, you know, a little little industry leader... Um, that we need to sort of get into the next, the next level. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I saw on your Instagram, you were playing with a threading, a dowel, mm. and cutting a thread into it. And uh, quite a while ago on the podcast, I was showing the guys that we had been working on these wooden jars, like a solid block of timber, mm. and we cut the thread. And so it's got the two part. It's got a screw-on lid, and it's a little bowl for taking um, cosmetics. It was, it was a, a startup wanted wanted to to make New Zealand-made cosmetics. They wanted this wooden bowl, and so we we eventually came to be able to route out of like a, a piece of 150 by 50. We could throw it on the on the router and cut like 10 bowls at a time, and thread them in all all sorts. But the time. We spent drawing that in, in whatever CAD program it was drawn in. Um, I think at the time I was saying to the guys it was probably around 80 hours of just constant drawings and trying it out to see what's going to work, feed speeds, how does this, like, we, I think we used the exact same thread cutter bit as what you were using and just w- working out how that works and how it cuts and, and like, so... I understand that you're probably mostly designing to make more than one of each thing, but so you can afford to spend a bit of time in the design process. But who's the person working out what uh, you know, telling the CNC what to do? Who's who's that guy? Is that you? Uh, Yeah, that's me. Right. (laughs) Um, I yeah, the thread cutting project's been a fun one and. I have sunk a lot of time into it, for sure. Mm. Um, I Late last year, late 2019, we won a big job for us doing components of an office fit-out um, with one of our sort of key clients who's a really great collaborator. Um, oh, is that all the whiteboards? Yeah, that's the same client, the whiteboards, but all these were these office pods, and I just thought, oh, let's let's hold these office pods together with threaded dowels, having never threaded anything before, <laughs> and I thought, that sounds fun. Um, and so it was around that time, we were just generally pretty busy, and I just, I finally broke my 
habit of not being able to get up early and I just started coming into work at sort of 5.30 every morning. Right. Um, and spending sort of two hours before the other guys got in just mucking around with these threading fixtures and trying to get a reliable process happening. Um, and I've basically been doing that for since, for about right. six, six months, <laughs> just, you know, four so mornings time, a week. That's the time it takes to to sort of master it because surely by this stage I mean you've got a pretty solid idea of what will and won't work yeah I think so uh, it's like any other tool you you know you feel it and hear it and you get sort of intimately uh, you get intimate with how it should sound and feel yeah. and you know I think it becomes intuitive at some level um, but that said uh, for that same project, I also dived into learning Fusion 360. Right. Um, and that has, like, the CAM side of Fusion 360 is re- makes it really easy in a sense to, like, you know, there is just a threading command. You uh, okay. select the cylinder and tell it what thread pitch you want, and it generates the G code. Like, nice. That's um, simple. It gets you started, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you, the, you can then perfect it from there, but like it gets you across that sort of that, that uh, hurdle yeah. that you might encounter otherwise. And so, how are you finding? I was interested because what what drew me drew me to the, this whole kind of thing about threads is I saw the picture with the the disc with the dowel legs on it, and I was like, wow, that's so cool! How the hell did you do that? And then I read it and said something about threading it. And I was like, holy crap, how does the thread hold? It looked like it was in birch plywood. Mm. Um, how is it to thread on the end, the edge grain of the plywood? My instinct yeah. says that you're going to start losing the odd bits of thread as the grain changes direction all the time. But The birch ply is actually pretty stable. Yeah. Um, I'd say that's probably the strongest substrate I've put a female thread into. Yeah. Um, the weakness tends to be the short grain on the Vic Ash right. male thread mm-hmm. if you're going straight in. Um, just because if you can picture the little V, it's like a tiny bit of short grain yeah. on each uh, ridge of the thread. And yeah. so if you really stress, like if you over torque the joint, that's it will strip itself and fail. Oh. Um, But actually in that desk design, none of the birch is threaded. It's all their uh, sex bolts, Uh, that is, where it's going through the panel and clamping it on either side. Um, So it's going from Vikash to Vikash Dow rather than threading into the birch itself. Um, I see. Yeah. That was was cool. I really liked that desk. Yeah, thank you. A a cool idea. So I I think you're the first person we've had on the show who's had, who's not been purely commissioned design. So when you look at your website, mm. you have the biggest product list that I think we've ever seen someone have on That's the show. It's amazing. <laughs> it's incredible because we, we only have, you know, the, the one shot of the perfect slab table mm. and then that's it. Do you find yourself, did you get there by accident or yep. do you find yourself preferring one or the other? Like, would you rather go the commission route or... Uh, last sort of five years, I've my answer to that question has been more product, please. Like, it's easier to manage from a business perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not a natural leader or boss. 
Um, it's uh, very, I feel very self-taught in that respect. And so managing a team product is just so much easier to um, get good results, but also just manage the day-to-day of who's doing what and people know what they're doing and um, it's easier. I reckon, I know you say you don't see yourself as much of a boss, but I reckon knowing some of your employees and watching the way they've learned through the process, mm. I think um, you really, you're sort of hands-on enough that you're teaching them, but you're making them learn on the job. And I think you've ended up with much better employees at the end of it and like much more confident of their own skills. Um, mm. Yeah. No, I think I think you're a good boss. Having not worked mm. for you, I think you're a good boss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate yeah. that. Um, yeah, like it. Yeah, it's a tricky balance. How how much do you let them make mistakes and learn on their own, and versus how much guidance or looking over their shoulder do you do? And that's yeah, it's just a constant battle. I think you covered it earlier, but how how many staff have you got? No. Um, well, currently, I've got three in the workshop and one business manager in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, I've had up to sort of eight to ten people on the team at one time, and that was too many, Mm -hmm. Um, just for me personally. Yeah. Any horror stories? Anyone that went really pear-shaped? No, I've been really lucky. (laughs) That's good. Um, (laughs) I don't have any juicy (laughs) stories for you there, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, Like everyone who's worked for us has been good in some respect, um, in most respects. And, um, yeah, I've got some really great friendships with ex-staff who've gone off to do their own thing. That's awesome. Um, and just a really loyal team now, all of whom have been with us for more than, or at least five years. Um, so, yeah, it's, it feels like a good balance now. Like, our, our capacity is greatly reduced to what it was even just two years ago, but this feels like a much more comfortable balance of having maximum of four of us in the workshop at any one time. Uh, Joey, how do you go with managing someone? Is, do you mm. feel like it's a natural thing? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um... Because being a dad, I'm sure there must be like some <laughs> elements. Yeah, well, you that, don't want to you know, treat your staff translate. like a five-year-old, but um. no, obviously not. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, I hope not. Otherwise, you might have the wrong employee. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I find it pretty difficult because my expectations are so high. It seems my yeah. I mean, I expect like ten thousand percent, and like. If I'm away for a couple of hours doing something and I come back, I expect that project to be finished. And, and when I see I come back and we're just milling up the timber, we're not even glued up yet, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, what have you been doing? I'm sure I could have done that, like, 20 times faster, and maybe I could have, but that's not the point. Um, mm. And so there's a certain amount of dealing with my massive expectations and yep. then dealing with the reality of that this person or people who are working for me just and it's just natural that they're not going to have the same enthusiasm I have for the job otherwise they'd be already doing it so Mm. um, you've got to like just take it with a grain of salt be thankful that you've got someone who's at least got the skills to manage what you put in front of them albeit a bit slower and often that's reflected in the pay as well and if, if they can't get crazy amounts done then you're not just not going to get the same amount of money as if you pulled your finger out and got lots done mm. and, um, and that's 
yeah, that's very difficult to... I was actually going to ask Jim, um, when people leave, like, that's the hardest thing to tell someone that it's, it's over. Have you had to say goodbye or have people willingly said it's time for me to leave? Well, that's, I think, part of my reasoning behind saying I don't think I'm a very good boss right. because I've never let anyone go. Right. Oh, that, no, I tell a lie. <laughs> Two. <laughs> Two, I did, we had a sort of significant downturn one year and I had to let some casuals go. Yeah. But, um, yeah, no, it's such a tricky thing. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a version of Like Butter which is me and a bunch of robots in a shed by myself and I've got a huge <laughs> smile on my face. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But that I know when I sort of stop and think about it that that that's a fantasy, and I realize you know just how valuable having a team can be. You know, I no longer work six or seven days a week. Yeah. For one. Yeah. Um, you know, we've since our business manager manager came on four or five years ago, she encouraged us to do a four day per week business model. Yeah. So we're just open Monday to Thursday. Um, we've got Friday as a catch-up day if we need it, and I'll come in and do stuff if I need to catch up. But from a, a, from a business perspective, we're just doing those four days, and that's been awesome for everybody. Good for me, good from good for our team. Yeah. You know, everyone can do their own thing and have other interests and yeah. other things going on on the Friday. And that's so been really good. You mentioned before we started recording that you because of COVID and everything you're now on a three day um, working week mm. just to manage funds and orders and everything else um, is that an issue with running the machine and having enough time when, when someone's watching the CNC or are you, you guys confident enough now that when you push cut you can just turn your back on the machine because <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't <laughs> <laughs> Don't um, even trust the machines, eh, Joe? No. <laughs> I side side note, but I set fire to our machine not that long ago. Right. Um, from being a bit overconfident okay. and posting out posting a new program out of Fusion and not checking my plunge feeds and Oof. speeds and was sanding at my bench and I looked over and there's <laughs> you know, fire and smoke coming out of the <laughs> vacuum table. But yeah, now, typically on a day-to-day sort of process level, most of our programs we've run before and we know what the yeah. pitfalls are and the risks and we can sort of set it up in the right way and walk away and do something else. Yeah. Um, I would love to be in the business of like machining aluminium parts where I could leave a machine running all night. Right. But I think in timber industry, there's just, there's always that fire risk. Yeah. Um, regardless of how well you set it up. And so, yeah, without, you know, we're a single spindle workshop and I would say that spindle is still underutilised. Like, we could be pushing so much more work through it. So, right. you know, today it probably only ran for two hours. Okay, well, yeah. But then the three days prior to that, it was running sort of eight-hour shifts every day. So it's just, you know, we're a small shop and it ebbs and flows and we don't sort of production manage it where we're trying to fill its time sort of we're not trying to pack out right. production on the machine because there's you know there's other things to do there's yeah. an inbox full of quotes and yeah. thing, things to paint and seal and sand and you know so yeah I'm interested to talk to you 
Now I've never seen this before and I don't know if you've invented this whole clip system but it mm. seems absolutely genius and if you could describe to us maybe what's going on and who came up with that. Yeah, sure. Um, so that was something I developed four years ago because we were making all these plywood boxes which are just glued and bratted together. I think a friend, Tom Rogers, introduced me to brad guns. I, you know, <laughs> again, I didn't know what a <laughs> nail gun was. Um, I bought a $20 brad gun at Bunnings and started stapling these plywood boxes together. Um, and so five years of that, we were shipping all these crates around the country in a cardboard carton. Fully made up. Fully made, yeah. which is just shipping air, yeah. you know, volume, which equals expense. Um, and so it was very much on my hit list to try and come up with a way of flat packing these crates in a way that the customer could assemble. And I can't remember how what the sort of genesis of that idea was, but in researching, I came across a some like packing shipping crate systems for like break break uh, pallets that could break down. Right. Um, that were using spring steel clips, or like they were big sort of flat steel things that would kind of work in a similar way of like grabbing a corner right. and providing tension um, and so I did a little drawing and got some CNC wire bent samples done in spring steel and I think did a couple of iterations um, before in sort of proving out the design um, and it, yeah it just worked really well um, it's it's because it's not a glue joint. It's super tough. Like you can drop the thing, and the whole thing just flexes. Yeah, right. Oh, I remember your slow mo drop videos. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I did some drop tests off the balcony of sort of five meters mm. of a traditional glue and brad box, and yeah. it just smash, smashes apart. And then the the birch sort of clip crate just bounces, and I think one of the clips sort of sprung off, but otherwise it pop it back on. Well, it's a very, very smart piece of design. Yeah, I, um, I mean, that seems like you need to patent it or something. Um, if, if, you, yeah. if, if you came up with it, it seems like you can sell that idea to people doing the same thing as you in other countries. But well, I had an inquiry from New Zealand yesterday of something, someone wanting to buy <laughs> the clips, which hasn't actually happened before. Um, I've always just worked to the principle of you get it out in the world and that's that's your patent. Yeah. Like, you just prove that you've done it. Yeah. I'm not interested in lawyer, lawyering up and protecting a patent. Fair um, enough. I heard something the other day, I can't remember where it was, but it was to do with patents and how mm. if you are into patents, what you are doing is you're trying to patent something for the future. Mm. You don't build something and patent it because... By that stage, your idea has already proliferated out. Yeah. So you need to patent something that someone hasn't invented. So when someone does invent it, <laughs> yeah. flash that piece of paper and, and make that cash. Collect. Yeah, right. that's right. Yeah. It's, it's awful. It's such a horrible way to look at, like, the creative world. Like, yeah, yeah, I know. Um, and, you know, Australia's got such a bad track, track record for design um, protection. I know, Brian, you're big on this and have yeah. been an advocate. One great piece of news is that Matt Blatt, that I have slated on this show numerous times, <laughs> are officially out of business. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> it was probably, our episode, probably I Probably been sold and 
they'll reopen again under some other name. But for right now, they are gone. Interesting. So no more knockoff furniture on the high street for a while. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So, Jim, uh, on your website, you kindly um, list all the prices of your items, which mm. was great, and used some really outrageously reasonable prices. So, for example, you've got these standing desks um, mm -hmm. for not much money. And so, are you um, designing it so all the parts can nest in a sheet in an even amount, or and which is difficult as crap? Or are you designing it to fit what you actually need to make and then nesting it as best you can inside of the sheet? Do you mean am I doing a big production run and nesting all of component A in the most efficient? Well, well, no. That's I guess that's a different level. And but mm. if you're making a hundred, you might do it that way. But I'm thinking you probably try and nest parts A to Z on one sheet, and you pro probably would try and get like two whole units or three whole units out of a sheet. Um, yeah. And but do you design it so the parts? you tweak the design so the parts fit inside of a sheet without having to get one and a bit sheets of plywood or are you like yeah, a bugger basically. I need one extra little piece from somewhere and I've got to buy another sheet um, a bit of column A a bit of column B yeah. um, certainly since sort of transitioning into fusion and modelling parametrically I've been it's sort of optimised that workflow a bit um, because I can model, say, the standing desk, nest it onto a sheet and go, oh, actually, I've got... And I did this when I recently transitioned that product into Fusion. I thought, oh, I've got all this space on the sheet. I'll tweak some of the design parameters to try and sort of optimise and minimise the waste mm -hmm. in that sheet. Um, but typically when I'm designing something, a product from scratch, I'll do it, just do what looks right. Right. And then I'll nest it and I'll look at... If, it, if it's really terrible, I'll go back and optimise it. Um, but typically, when you do sort of enough of this, like all the dimensions in your head are sort of... are dimensions that naturally nest yeah. reasonably well. So Threes and sixes know, and stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, 290, 390, yeah, yeah. 590, yeah. Um, yeah. It's a pretty it's a pretty amazing achievement to create something that is designed and made here that can compete on price with like the IKEAs of this world, you know. <laughs> like hats off to you. Um, so, thanks, man. Cheers. It's amazing. It, it's a really interesting um, point, Brian, because as far as I know, because I have not ever stepped foot into an IKEA shop, so <laughs> I don't know. Lucky you. But. I would imagine that IKEA probably do some kind of edge treatment to all of their cut edges on, on their stuff, some kind of white edge mm. banding or faux plywood edge banding. Um, and so, Jim, are you doing anything to, like, the edges? Uh, so I know some of the panels of plywood mm. I can get come with, a, a like, a plastic film, protective mm. film on the sheet and after we CNC or cut something out we could just like spray lacquer the edge and it's kind of sealed and it looks pretty that's a whole big step you know, of labour for something for someone to do so are you generally yeah. just leaving them raw raw plywood edges? Typically um, yes we leave it raw I'm glad you asked because it kind of brings me to something that I've been thinking a lot about this week um, about our future 
Um, I don't like the fact that we've put tens of thousands of products into the world with a raw, like with no finish on them. Because mm-hmm. I wonder, you know, in re- you know, while I might be happy with some real grubby plywood boxes next to m- as my bedside table, yeah. I wonder about the sort of shelf life of these sort of affordable products we've put out into the world. Um, sure, they're Australian made and that's great, but if they're just going to end up in the bin, then that's not mm. what I want to be achieving in my life. So you're selling, like, as furniture, you're selling, say, like, radiator pine ply as, as like, yep. a bedside table um, exactly. instead yeah. of, like, the HPL version. Yeah, correct. And, you know, we can assume... We can make the assumption of, oh, the customer will oil it themselves, you know, they'll look after it, but... Probably won't we, don't know, we don't know that. Yeah. Um, Can you sell them a hundred mil of uh, hard wax oil? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, and that's what we should be doing. Like, there's so much more work that we need to do as the business to ensure that we're making affordable products, but they're affordable products that are going to last the test of time. Like, mm. I was kind of workshopping some ideas this week about what, you know, it's taken me 13 years to sort of think about what our mission statement might be. Right. <clears throat> Um, but I think my sort of work in progress is make affordable stuff that will last. Um, you know, that does I'm that go? That does that go as far as talking to like plywood manufacturers on the type of plywood that they're making? Or yeah, potentially. Um, I'd love to use more local plywood. Um, we currently use a lot of radiata, which comes out of South America, and a lot of birch that comes out of Europe. Or um, uh, some out of Finland, yep. but some out of the Ukraine. Yeah. Um, so, the radiata, mm. we we I mean, New Zealand grows ridiculous amounts, mm. and I buy okay. cheap <coughs> radiata uh, ply, which is really nice on one side at least. Which is probably yep. the problem I imagine is finding a two-sided, clean-faced plywood um, that really it's... pushes the price up here. Yeah. Um, is there a reason you haven't looked at closer to home options? Is it just the quality of New Zealand ply, given that generally you only get one good side? Yeah, basically. Um, so Carter Holt Harvey, I don't know if that's the same yeah, mill that you get, yeah. but um, I know that's Australian and New Zealand yeah. tree stock. Um, that's something I've wanted to I've wanted to use their stock for years, mm. um, but they don't do a BB or an AC or. You like can't that. get one. I've ordered one special and it was $300 oh, yeah? a sheet. Oh, yeah. See, there you go. <laughs> um, it's not worth it. But we, when we moved into the new workshop in Castlemaine, we bought a, a wide belt sander. Oh, and so okay. in the back of my head, I've been wondering, like, do we buy the lower grade stuff and just finish it ourselves? Um, well, could you throw so. a veneer on? A what? Could, could you throw a <laughs> veneer, on, your own veneer on, on the B side? You're talking real, real woodwork now. <laughs> well, if you're gonna if you're gonna go that far, you've already got a sander and a CNC. It wouldn't be much more work to um, buy full layups of veneer, throw some glue on it, like put a cold press, um, a cold press glue on it, and you could probably do like five five to ten sheets at once, and you know put fifty ton on it, and that's it. You've got you've just pressed yourself. You know, a sheet of veneer is going to cost you like forty bucks. Mm. Um, and you just turned a $50 sheet of plywood into a $200 sheet of plywood. Mm. 
Yeah. Um, you got room for a nice big vacuum press in that 700 would, square meter workshop, don't you? I would love a press. Just, yeah. just put it out the back. There's no one there anyway. So. I, would, I, would, I would squash all sorts of things. <laughs> yeah, you don't want a vacuum press for that. You want a, like a actual yeah. hydraulic ram. Hydraulic, school. hydraulic yeah. rams in each corner and yeah. you're, you're putting 100 ton on it. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. Talk, yes, talking about the standing desks, do they sell quite well? Uh, yeah, did, okay. co- did COVID see a spike in sales now that everybody's working from home? Yeah, yeah, we did see a little spike. Um, we, we, COVID has been sort of the strongest our web order sales have ever been. Um, the commercial work definitely dropped off, but our, all our, our loyal customer base who were stuck at home looking at their, you know, what they had were sort of really helping us throughout that period with small sales of bookshelves and crates and small desks and things. Um, but that's something I was going to talk, I mentioned about the clip crates before. Like, as a designer, I was so proud of that system. And I put this product up on the website and, you know, I got a really strong response on Instagram from all the engineers and makers and designers out there. Right. But our customer base just see it and go, oh, yeah. oh but it's it's got all these extra fiddly details oh, on it. I'll, I'll just take the nailed one, please. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> and we still sell more of the glue and nailed version. And You're kidding me. Part of me just wants to delete them, you know, take them off the web store. But, you know, particularly at times like this, you don't want to sort of say no to any work. So, Can you know, you not... we, keep, we keep making them. And so it's not, I... <clears throat> it's not ideal to have a, a glue and nailed anything. <clears throat> but um, um, and the main problem is that you don't want to send a big volumetric mm. object. Could you not flat pack it still, pre-drill it, and give them a handful of stainless steel screws? Yeah, that could and be a tiny thing. little squeezy of Sally's PVA <laughs> or something. Yeah, and oh, so, some some instructions in a foreign language with a funny <laughs> name. And well, we're starting to really sound like IKEA here. Yeah. <laughs> that's so sad like I mean the assembly the assembly with those clips takes how long how long can you assemble one of those boxes? a minute a minute or two tops there yeah yeah and that, I think that that comes back to you know it's our responsibility to educate our mm-hmm. clients and like I haven't done a great job of that you know Oh, I don't know. Really I think you, if, you're t- if you're talking about those slow-mo drop videos again and showing people the difference between the two you've created something yeah. that is cheaper to ship it's stronger and it's, it's aesthetically about, more interesting it's about design education too though right like yep. sort of appreciating the fact that it you are reducing shipping and the appreciation of a, a, a spring steel clip providing that fastening force and you know I can see that from my customer base people love plywood People who love plywood mm. love plywood, and they love the aesthetic mm. of plywood. As soon as you introduce that spring steel clip, <laughs> some of my clients I know would say, it's too industrial for me. Mm. Hence the reason probably people are saying, can we have just a nailed one where I don't have this mm. extra bar of steel, which might be a color they don't want to introduce into their color scheme, especially if they've got an interior designer telling them to buy it. And then, oh, no, we don't want the steel version because there's no other, no, there's nothing else with steel, you know, exposed or whatever. And one of my, yeah, one of my favorite moments was we had a stylist request like 30 crates for a, a cover <laughs> shot in one of these interior decorating magazines. Yeah. I won't name names. Um, 
and we shipped them 30 crates up to Sydney. <laughs> and when they sent us the photo, like, they'd assembled them all inside out so they didn't have to use the steel clips. No wonder you've got a complex about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it seems to be a bit of a sore point for everyone. Jeez. That's funny as... That's so typical. <clears throat> yeah, because yeah, people want that rustic, I would assume, that rustic look, and yeah, that stainless steel is going to be very industrial. Yeah. Do you, can I just ask you a bit about the arts side of like, yeah. what Laura does as well and how you interact with that in your business? And Sure. Yeah. Um, I'll try and give you the short version is every two to three years we get the courage to take on a big art commission. Um, and it's usually when you Laura. say big art commission, you mean big art commissions. Yeah, well, the last one we did, which we still haven't gotten over, was big. Yeah, it was a three to $400,000 budget. Um, public realm sculpture. Um, I blame Laura because she's always the one applying for these things <laughs> and then we win the damn job. <laughs> um, and so that took about 18 months to produce. Um, that was this most recent job, and it's in Melbourne. It's between two towers that were being built, and it's a sort of 75-metre-long uh, fibre-optic artwork with 22,000 individually controlled LEDs. Jeez. Everything about it is custom. We, <laughs> we employed electrical engineers to produce custom circuit boards to control the LEDs. We machined, you know, 150 aluminium enclosures on our machine to waterproof all these custom circuit boards. It was just bonkers. Crazy. Spent $60,000 on optic fibre. What? And, yeah, it was a nutty job. Um, Is that the one on your Instagram? Um, uh, with yeah. It looks like it's a lighting piece with it just looks like... Um, What's that, vermicelli, that really thin... Yeah. <laughs> is that the one? <laughs> That's the one. The noodle. Ah, yeah, the noodles. The set. noodles. Um, and then on the day the, this, you know, twin tower complex was being handed over to the client, a water main burst on the 30th floor and flooded 50 apartments. Jeez. And so we never launched it. Like, uh -huh. it's been the biggest anticlimax because we finished this 18-month project and... We went overseas to Finland on an art, art, artist residency like the next day and came back and it was like the building was still being repaired and like <laughs> we've just, we've never done anything with it. Like there's a hashtag on my Instagram which is like Operation by like, Summer Project or something <laughs> that kind of documents the build, but that's about it. Um, so, so where is it, Nigel? It's running, yeah. Oh, it is yeah. running. It is it's just the, not it's officially being launched or anything. Like uh, it's under the Marina Tower complex, ah, if anyone cool. wants to go and see it. It's that sort of slightly kinked offset twin tower arrangement yep. down in the Docklands. Look for um, the drips. Look for <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, as I say, we tend to be pretty... That's the biggest one we've done, but we do them every few years, and Laura's got an active uh, sculpture practice. And has her she, own she teaches work. still as well. Yeah, she teaches she at the teaches. BCA. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Now you guys do some amazing stuff, and your support as well for a lot of young makers out there. Like, I would never have found a workshop if it wasn't for you guys. 
and even things like uh, I don't know the Fringe Furniture Program in Melbourne that you, you guys sponsor an award for that. It's just really nice to see a business that sort of gives back to the industry a bit, and you know you're always there, maker drinks and making the effort. So, <laughs> yeah, it's it's cool. Well, yeah, thanks, man. We're we're lucky to have such a good community of makers. I mean, even just on Instagram, it's like there's so many good peers to connect to in the states and Europe and here, and just you know, I really enjoy that aspect of the, that platform specifically. Um, I would, from a business perspective, I would jump ship off Instagram any day and just delete the app and get away from it. <laughs> yeah. But that that community of makers and like-minded yeah. people just draws me back in, and the collaborations and conversations that come out of it are uh, really important. So, with that in mind, where can people find your stuff? Um, like butter Melbourne is our Instagram hashtag, the Instagram handle. Um, our website is likebutter.com.au. Um, and they're the main Where'd the things. name come from? Uh, the plasma cutter. <laughs> um, cuts like butter. Cuts steel like butter, yeah. <laughs> We drew, right. we drew a little block of butter with like butter on the label and that was our first logo for a That's few cool. years. I like that. That's awesome. Um, and it's just stuck as a really useful name. Um, back in the old days when I had a yellow pages, yellow pages listing, I had sort of a couple of calls of like how much per kilo. <laughs> uh, nice. Yeah, I just, I just like it because it's not, you know obnoxious designs or, or something like you know we've seen it a million times it's it's a really it's a really unique name yeah. well yeah and it's given me the flexibility over the years to do whatever i want with the business like we've just literally mm. followed our tail or the client's tail or just wherever the work has led us we've gone um and the name has just followed with us and hasn't it hasn't dated or become irrelevant to what we do um yeah yeah cool all right, I reckon we'll leave it there for today. So to everyone listening, I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please go ahead and give it a rating on iTunes. That really does help us out. The Shopstool podcast is available on iTunes and most other podcast apps. My name is Robin Lewis. Joey and Brian, thanks very much for hanging out. Jim, once again, thanks so much for being on the show. We really do appreciate it. Uh, for those of you who uh, follow the show, this is actually the first time that we're recording the show at night. So, you know, Jim, thanks, thanks for making yourself available this late in the evening. No, pleasure. Thanks, Robin. Thanks, Joey. Thanks, Brian. It's been awesome to be on and chat with you guys. Awesome. Thanks very much. Thank you. Yeah, cool. Cheers, guys. Catch you next time. Thanks, everyone. See ya. See ya. See ya. Bye.